0: Welcome everyone to episode 36 of Curse Land, an anthology show about strange happenings, curious folk, and small towns. I am your host and sole proprietor of Curse Land, which can be found at www.curse.land. That's right, we're back. I knew the month of September was going to be rough and I should have been better prepared for it. Maybe next time I'll record a few episodes in advance or something like that. Anyway, had to have a little hiatus there, but I wasn't going to let the whole month go by without a show, so thanks for sticking with me. Let's get started. i got a few notes about this first story before we get too far into it. As you might imagine, I've fallen to a great many internet rabbit holes and I fell into one here lately about the theory of abiotic oil. Now if you've heard this before you are absolutely already rolling your eyes. I had never heard of this though. So the theory of abiotic oil comes in a few forms but I think mainly the gist of it is that there are no fossil fuels and that the majority of oil we have in the reserves we've found has originated somewhere else. deep inside the earth and seeped up into earth's crust so I don't know really anything about the sort of arguments surrounding this I am not a scientist but as you might imagine like anything else that goes against the cathedral of its time this is great material for a trip into Conspiracy Corner so it took me an inordinate amount of time to find a piece of writing about this that wasn't just taking one side and attempting to lambast the other but I think we finally got one so here we go a small primer on abiotic oil This is from a site called HealthResearchFunding.org and it's entitled, Abiotic Oil Theory, Explained. Science believes that oil and natural gas are formed by organisms decomposing. How that process originated is the subject of the abiotic oil theory. At some point, inorganic matter had to be the foundation of the organic matter that would eventually create the fossil fuels. That transition from inorganic to organic is an evolutionary process, referred to as abiogenesis. When applied to oil and natural gas formation, that is how we get to the abiotic oil theory. The first abiotic oil theory was proposed in the 16th century by Georgius Agricola. They continued to be promoted through the first half of the 20th century, especially within the Soviet Union. Because there's a lack of predictability in finding oil or natural gas deposits using this theory, however, it's generally rejected for the theories that involve organism decomposition. Several ideas that have been shared through the abiotic oil theory suggest that natural gas and petroleum have always been present on Earth. The initial deep deposits could have been formed from carbon deposits that formed during the initial period of planetary formation. Those carbon deposits could have come from asteroids, comets, or unknown special bodies that impacted the Earth during its formation. Within the mantle of the Earth, carbon has the potential of existing as hydrocarbons. It's usually found as methane, but CO2, elemental carbon, or carbonates are also possible. Within the abiotic oil theory, it is suggested that petroleum can be generated within the mantle based on abiogenic processes that incorporate this carbon. In 2009, the Royal Institute of Technology in Stockholm reported research that suggests crude oil and natural gas can be generated outside of the decomposition of flora and fauna fossils. That finding provides support for the idea that petroleum and natural gas can form through more than one method. There are six possible mechanisms that could support the processes described in the abiotic oil theory, creating organic matter from inorganic matter. Number 1. Ancient Deposits Crude oil and natural gas could be formed from ancient hydrocarbon deposits that have always been present on our planet. Whether it was supernaturally created or the planet formed through a natural evolutionary process, these hydrocarbons have formed into fuel over the potential of one billion years. Number 2. Mantle Creation The hydrocarbon mixes required in the abiotic oil theory may also be created within the natural conditions of the mantle. 3. Hydrogen Generation Hydrogen has been found as deep as 20,000 feet below the surface of our planet. Depths of up to 60,000 feet are possible. If hydrogen were present, it could react with water, ferrous oxide, and magnetite to produce crude oil or natural gas. Number four, Serpentite Mechanism. Another proposed idea is that methane, hydrogen, or carbon dioxide could form petroleum with inorganic carbon when exposed to a high-pressure, high-temperature environment. Number five, Spinal polymerization Mechanism. High concentrations of magnetite, ilmenite, and chromite can be found in many rocks. Although chemically reduced rocks would be required to make this mechanism work, the reaction of methane and magnetite with ethane and hematite offers the potential of producing the conditions described by the abiotic oil theory. Number 6. Carbonate Decomposition It is possible for calcium carbonate to decompose at temperatures of over 900 Fahrenheit or 500 Celsius. The only problem is that calcium carbonate is not a mineral found within natural rocks, so, although this reaction is possible, the plausibility of this method is not practical to the implementation of the theory. Why is the abiotic oil theory important to study? Although the origin of petroleum or natural gas seems like a strange debate to have, determining whether this fuel is a fossil fuel or not is important. If these fuels truly are fossil fuels then they're limited in supply and alternative energy resources would need to be created at some point. If they're not fossil fuels and are created through some form of abiogenesis then the need to develop alternative fuels is reduced. The fact is however that no one knows with absolute certainty how oil and natural gas deposits form on our planet. We do know they're not directly associated with tectonic plates and structures But otherwise, any theory offers potential answers. The abiotic oil theory comes in and out of preference over the years. At the moment, it may be out of favor for many, but that does not eliminate its potential validity. And now for something completely different. From pastandpresent.com, Hobo nickels and Big Nose George Parrott. And this story was actually sent in by a listener. Um, you all know I don't make a habit of reading people's names on the show, but you know who you are, so thanks a lot for this. Take no offense at the title. The term Hobo nickel is one of endearment, and it refers to a rich artistic and cultural phenomenon popularized in the U.S., The art form hit a peak during the Great Depression, though the practice gained traction with the introduction of the Transcontinental Railroad and can be traced back to the 1700s. These creative sculptures use a couple coin denominations primarily, but the buffalo nickel minted in 1913 provided a favored surface for these carvings. Hobo nickels use a sculptural technique known as boss relief, wherein an image is carved out of and projects from a shallow surface, Hobo coin sculptors utilized minted coins as their canvas, further carving, chiseling, or punching into the surface to create a unique image. The heyday of the practice began in 1913 and lasted through the Great Depression. The country's economy had tanked and Americans were brought to their knees. Many citizens found themselves homeless and desperate for work. These hobos would take to the trains, crossing the country to and fro, seeking gainful employment. As you can imagine, there wasn't much in the way of travel entertainment, and so these unknown artisans would chisel their way across the country in hopes of trading their coins for sustenance and shelter. These unique coins, as history would have it, actually carved their way into the valued collections of New Semitists everywhere. Though the U.S. Treasury no longer recognizes hobo nickels as legal tender, their uniqueness and historical context actually make them more valuable than their cousins in circulation, while many artists are still unknown, several artists gained widespread notoriety for their distinctive designs. Bertram Bert Weigand and his hobo protégé George Bo Washington Hughes are perhaps the most famous of the bunch originating from the Great Depression. Many carvers are simply known by their nickname. One such artist goes by Big Nose. Big Nose created coins in his own image featuring men with, you guessed it, a sizable schnoz his coins are unique and are visually referred to by more modern-day coin artists like Gary Jacobs. Jacobs is best known for his big nose inspired coin tribute to a Wild West era bandit bearing the same nickname, Big Nose George Parrot. Many hobo coins display portraits of hobo's, fictional characters and well-known individuals. Of all the subjects found on these coins, Big Nose George is perhaps the most interesting. Many tall tales surround the life of Big Nose George. Rumors about his involvement with Jesse James can ultimately be traced back to the Nose himself. Still other stories, like the one that claims he ran with Butch Cassidy's gang, the Wild Bunch, are improbable given time constraints. Big Nose was nonetheless an outlaw, murderer, horse, and cattle thief. He engaged in failed train heists, profitable cattle raids, and ambushes, and the latter eventually led to his twice attempted and once successful lynching by a mob of Wyoming townspeople. George's life of crime fascinated doctor John Eugene Osborne and doctor Thomas McGee, who took possession of Big Nose's lifeless body to study the brain behind the lawlessness. George's skull cap was removed and given to a then teenage Lillian Heath, who worked as doctor Osborne's assistant and later became the first female physician west of the Mississippi. She reportedly used the skull cap as a favorite ashtray, and occasionally, a doorstop. Although the doctors never discovered any superficial or internal irregularities that could explain the criminality of Big Nose George, Dr. Osborne decided to make the fruitless effort worth his while by turning George into several trophies. These trophies were a pair of laced dress shoes, a death mask, and one medical bag. Yes, you read that correctly the rest of the remains were piled into an old whiskey barrel and buried behind the doctor's clinic. Dr. Osborne saw it fit to not only display the man's death mask, but to strap him to his feet and stuff him with medical tools for the rest of his own career. He even donned the shoes to his inaugural ball after being elected as the first Democratic governor of Wyoming. To this day, the public can view the shoes, death mask, and skullcap on display at the Union Pacific Museum in Omaha, Nebraska. George Parrott may be an odd character to commemorate forever on a coin, but many of the faces found in hobo coins are, indeed, criminals. Most of the known hobo coin creators were themselves in and out of the penitentiary. They lived on the fringe and so did their carved subjects. Hobo coins are a unique niche within numismatics that ultimately elevate the low and memorialize the forgotten. Now a story entitled, In 1945, a Japanese balloon bomb killed six Americans, five of them children, in Oregon. This is from smithsonianmag.com, and it's written by Francine Unima. Elise Mitchell almost didn't go on the picnic that sunny day in Bly, Oregon. She had baked a chocolate cake the night before in anticipation of their outing, her sister would later recall, but the 26-year-old was pregnant with her first child and had been feeling unwell. On the morning of May 5, 1945, she decided she felt decent enough to join her husband, Reverend Archie Mitchell, and a group of Sunday school children from their tight-knit community as they set out for nearby Gearhart Mountain in southern Oregon. Against a scenic backdrop far removed from the war raging across the Pacific, Mitchell and five other children would become the first, and only, civilians to die by enemy weapons on the United States mainland during World War II. While Archie parked their car, Elsie and the children stumbled upon a strange-looking object in the forest and shouted back to him. The reverend would later describe that tragic moment to local newspapers. I hurriedly called a warning to them, but it was too late. Just then there was a big explosion. I ran up and they were all lying there, dead. Lost in an instant were his wife and unborn child, alongside Eddie Ingen, 13, Jay Gifford, 13, Sherman Shoemaker, 11, Dick Patsky, 14, and Joan Sis Patsky. 13. Dottie McGinnis, sister of Dick and Joan Patsky, later recalled to her daughter in a family memory book the shock of coming home to cars gathered in the driveway, and the devastating news that two of her siblings and friends from the community were gone. I ran to one of the cars and asked, Is Dick dead or Joan dead? Is Jay dead? Is Eddie dead? Is Sherman dead? Archie and Elsie had taken them on a Sunday school picnic up on Gearhart Mountain. After each question, they answered yes. At the end, they all were dead except Archie. Like most in the community, the Patsky family had no inkling that the dangers of war would reach their own backyard in rural Oregon. But the eyewitness accounts of Archie Mitchell and others would not be widely known for weeks. In the aftermath of the explosion, the small lumber milling community would bear the added burden of enforced silence. For Reverend Mitchell and the families of the children lost, the unique circumstances of their devastating loss would be shared by none and known by few. In the months leading up to that spring day on Gearhart Mountain, there had been some warning signs, apparitions scattered around the western United States that were largely unexplained, at least to the public flashes of light, the sound of explosion, the discovery of mysterious fragments, all amounted to little concrete information to go on. First, the discovery of a large balloon miles off the California coast by the Navy on November 4, 1944. A month later, on December 6, 1944, witnesses reported an explosion and flame near Thermopolis, Wyoming. Reports of fallen balloons began to trickle in to local law enforcement with enough frequency that it was clear something unprecedented in the war had emerged that demanded explanation. Military officials began to piece together that a strange new weapon with markings indicated it had been manufactured in Japan had reached American shores. They did not yet know the extent or capability or scale of these balloon bombs. Though relatively simple as a concept these balloons, which aviation expert Robert C. Mikish describes in Japan's World War II balloon bomb attacks on North America as the first successful intercontinental weapons, long before that concept was a mainstay in the Cold War vernacular, required more than two years of concerted effort and cutting-edge technology engineering to bring into reality. Japanese scientists carefully studied what would become commonly known as the jet stream, realizing these currents of wind could enable balloons to reach the United States shores in just a couple days. The balloons remained afloat through an elaborate mechanism that triggered a fuse when the balloon dropped in altitude, releasing a sandbag and lightening the weight enough for it to rise back up. This process would repeat until all that remained was the bomb itself. By then, the balloons would be expected to reach the mainland. An estimated 1,000 out of 9,000 launched made the journey. Between the fall of 1944 and summer of 1945, several hundred incidents connected to the balloons had been catalogued. The balloons not only required engineering acumen, but a massive logistical effort. Schoolgirls were conscripted to labor in factories manufacturing the balloons, which were made of endless reams of paper and held together by a paste made of konyaku, a potato-like vegetable. The girls worked long, exhausting shifts, their contributions to this wartime project shrouded in silence. The massive balloons would then be launched, timed carefully to optimize the wind currents of the jet stream and reach the United States. Engineers hoped that the weapon's impact would be compounded by forest fires, inflicting terror through both the initial explosion and an ensuing conflagration. That goal was stymied in part by the fact that they arrived during the rainy season. But had this goal been realized, these balloons may have been much more than an overlooked episode in a vast war. As reports of isolated sightings and theories on how they got there, ranging from submarines to saboteurs, made their way into a handful of news reports over the Christmas time holiday, government officials stepped in to censor stories about the bombs worrying that fear itself might soon magnify the effect of these new weapons. The reverse principle also applied. While the American public was largely in the dark in the early months of 1945, so were those who were launching these deadly weapons. Japanese officers later told the Associated Press that they finally decided the weapon was worthless and the whole experiment useless because they had repeatedly listened to radio broadcasts and had heard no further mention of the balloons. Ironically, the Japanese had ceased launching them shortly before the picnic and children had stumbled across one. However successful censorship had been in discouraging further launches, this very censorship made it difficult to warn the people of the bomb danger, writes Mikish. The risk seemed justified as weeks went by and no casualties were reported. After that, luck ran out with the Gearhart Mountain deaths. Officials were forced to rethink their approach. On May 22nd, the War Department issued a statement confirming the bomb's origin and nature so the public may be aware of the possible danger and to reassure the nation that the attacks are so scattered and aimless that they constitute no military threat. The statement was measured to provide sufficient information to avoid further casualties but without giving the enemy encouragement. But by then, Germany's surrender dominated headlines word of the Bly, Oregon deaths and the strange mechanism that had killed them was overshadowed by the dizzying pace of the finale in the European theater. The silence meant that for decades grieving families were sometimes met with skepticism or outright disbelief. The balloon bombs had been so overlooked that during the making of the documentary, On Paper Wings, several of those who lost family members told filmmaker Ilana Soule of reactions to their unusual stories. They would be telling someone about the loss of their sibling, and that person just didn't believe them, Saul recalls. While much of the American public may have forgotten, the families in Bly never would. The effects of that moment would reverberate throughout the Mitchell family, shifting the trajectory of their lives in unexpected ways. Two years later, Reverend Mitchell would go on to marry the Betty Patsky, the elder sibling out of the ten children in Dick and Joan Patsky's family. They lost another brother fighting in the war, And fulfill the dream he and Elsie once shared of going overseas as missionaries. Reverend Mitchell was later kidnapped from a leprosarium while he and Betty were serving as missionaries in Vietnam. Fifty seven years later, his fate remains unknown. When you talk about something like that, as bad as it seems when that happened and everything, I look at my four children. They never would have been. And I'm so thankful for all four of my children and my ten grandchildren they wouldn't have been if that tragedy hadn't happened, Betty Mitchell told Soul in an interview. The Bly incident also struck a chord decades later in Japan. In the late 1980s, University of Michigan professor Yuzuru John Takashita, who as a child had been incarcerated as a Japanese American in California during the war and was committed to healing efforts in the decades after, learned that the wife of a childhood friend had built the bombs as a young girl. He facilitated a correspondence between the former schoolgirls and the residents of Bly, whose community had been turned upside down by one of the bombs they built. The women folded a thousand paper cranes as a symbol of regret for the lives they lost. On paper wings shows them meeting face to face in Bly, decades later. Those gathered embodied a sentiment echoed by the Mitchell family. It was a tragic thing that happened, says Judy McGinnis Sloan. Betty Mitchell's niece, but they've never been bitter over it. The loss of these six lives puts into relief the scale of loss in the enormity of a war that swallowed up entire cities. At the same time as Bly residents were absorbing the loss they had endured over the spring and summer of 1945, more than 60 Japanese cities burned, including the infamous firebombing of Tokyo. On August 6th, 1945, The first atomic bomb was dropped on the city of Hiroshima, followed three days later by another on Nagasaki. In total, an estimated 500,000 or more Japanese civilians would be killed. Sol recalls working on these interviews and just thinking, My God, this one death caused so much pain. What if it was everyone and everything? And that's really what the Japanese people went through. In August of 1945, days after Japan announced its surrender, nearby Klamath Falls Herald and News published a retrospective, noting that it was only by good luck that other tragedies were averted, but noted that balloon bombs still loomed in the vast west that likely remained undiscovered, and so ends a sensational chapter of the war, it noted but Clementites were reminded that it still can have a tragic sequel. While the tragedy of that day in Bly has not been repeated, the sequel remains a real, if more remote, possibility. In 2014, a couple of forestry workers in Canada came across one of the unexploded balloon bombs, which still posed enough danger that a military bomb disposal unit had to blow it up. Nearly three-quarters of a century later, these unknown remnants are a reminder that even the most overlooked scars of war are slow to fade. Now a story titled, 99 Years Ago... World War I arrived on the shores of Cape Cod, and this is by Nick DeCosta Clipper, and it's from Boston.com. On July 21st, 1918, Dr. J. Danforth Taylor made a rather urgent call. "Hello, is this the Globe?" he asked. Taylor was informed that indeed he had reached the offices of the Boston Globe. "This is Dr. Taylor of East Boston," he continued. I'm at Nauset on Cape Cod. There's a submarine battle going on just offshore. Dr. Taylor wasn't lying. Exactly 99 years ago on Friday, a lone German U-boat attacked just off the coast of New Orleans, raiding a tugboat and its four barges, and even incidentally shelling the beach where eyewitnesses gathered in awe. The raid made the quiet Cape Cod town the only place in the United States to be hit by enemy fire during World War One. It brought the war that was over there, over here, Jake Clem, the author of Attack on Orleans, told Boston.com. As Clem writes in his book, the SMU-156 was one of the first German submarines over the course of the two world wars to wreak havoc off the American coast in an effort to terrorize and incite anti-war sentiment along the eastern seaboard. It had already sunk one 500-foot U.S. Navy ship off Long Island that summer, killing six sailors before reaching Cape Cod. Military officials had been aware at the time of the possibility that sharks weren't the only thing lurking off Cape Shores. Within a year of the United States entering the war, a short-lived naval air station was built in Chatham to patrol the waters. Clem says the routine patrols garnered countless false reports of the German enemies creeping below the surface, but on that hot and hazy July day, the threat was very real. A tugboat named the Perth Amboy had opted to tow its four barges en route to the Chesapeake Bay around the tip of the Cape's outer arm, rather than pay the toll that then existed in the recently opened Cape Cod Canal. Just before 10.30 a.m., Clem says a deckhand, one of 32 people on the unarmed boat and barges, saw something skimming across the surface of the water. Before he could even yell submarine, the boat's pilot house was struck by shellfire from the U-156's deck guns. The explosion itself wounded several men. For the next 90 minutes, what happens is that this tugboat towing these four barges in a row, it's a five-boat target stretching across it, and it's almost like a video game. The submarines sinking one after another after another, just kind of going down the line, Clem said. However, the U-156 apparently did not have great aim. A number of errant shells sailed over the boats and landed on Nowset Beach and a nearby marsh. The shooting by the Germans is rotten, Taylor told the Globe as he watched the attack take place in real time from his beach house veranda. It has a terrible time hitting its target, Clem said, It shot upwards of 147 shells in 90 minutes. Nevertheless, according to Globe reports at the time, the submarine went down the line, sinking three of the barges. All that we could do was stand there and take what they sent us, Perth envoy Captain I.H. Tupley later told the paper. Meanwhile, the ongoing attack created a sizable stir on shore. According to the Globe, beachgoers initially sought shelter upon the first shells hitting the land, but upon realizing the beachside houses weren't a target, a large crowd increasingly began to gather on the beach. The Boulder Ones are now seated on their cottage piazzas, watching the fight, Taylor told the paper. You have countless people who are descending on the beach because this is before television, and this is the most amazing thing they've ever seen before, Clem said. The Globe reported the following day that a thousand people had crowded Nowsett Beach to watch with bated breath the work of destruction. However, they weren't all bystanders. The Lifesavers, an early precursor to the U.S. Coast Guard, were the closest first responders. They had been trained to rescue shipwrecked sailors, often in less than ideal conditions. In this case, they were tasked with saving the 32 people on the tugboat and barges who were hastily escaping into lifeboats. They're used to saving people, Clem said. They're not used to rescuing people under German shellfire. Within ten minutes of the first shots, the attack was also reported to the nearby Chatham Air Base, which had two seaplanes in the skies responding to the scene by 11.15 a.m. As the U-156 continued its assault on the Perth Envoy and its barges, the planes dive-bombed the submarine. In response, the U-156 turned its attention, tilting its guns upward and firing upon the approaching planes. Each of the planes carried a six-foot Mark IV bomb, which Clem described as almost cartoonish and which would certainly destroy the submarine if they hit it directly. However, the bombs, which had a history of malfunctioning, failed to explode. But it was enough to scare away the submarine. The guys in the submarines have no idea, Clem said. They quickly batten the hatches, as they say, and submerge and disappear and head back out to sea. The U-156 would go on to harass and sink fishing boats off the coast of Maine and Canada, before cruising back toward Europe in September. However, it reportedly disappeared in a North Sea minefield. Despite the dud bombs, a naval lieutenant later even credited the plane's response for saving the towns of Chatham and Orleans. It is reasonably certain, had the U-boat not been attacked from the air, she would have destroyed the Chatham and Orleans, not because of any military value, but for the decided moral effect that such destruction would have had, said Lt. Elijah Williams, according to Clem's book. What a nice breakfast story this would have given to the German newspapers. Two American cities destroyed by U-boat. Instead, the attack had the opposite effect, galvanizing the Cape Cod community. Two of the sunk barges were empty, and the other had been filled with stone, according to Globe reports at the time. The tugboat, though damaged by the shelling and resulting fire on board, somehow stayed afloat. They kind of laughed, Clem said, of the local reaction to the attack. They made fun of the Germans a lot. Even amid the shelling, Jack Ansley, the 11-year-old son of one of the barge's captains, stood on its deck waving the American flag until his father forced him to get into a lifeboat. My little boy Jack appeared to enjoy the whole affair, and his display of courage is truly remarkable, Captain Charles Ansley, who was one of the few injured by shrapnel, later told the Globe. As soon as the shells began coming toward us, he insisted that he get his American flag. As those on the tugboats and barges arrived safely ashore, the younger Ansley was again proudly waving the flag from his lifeboat, Clem said. None of the men, women, or children aboard the tugboat or barges were killed in the attack. The worst of those injured was a crew member whose arm was nearly severed by splinters from an exploding shell. Captain Ansley did, however, fear one casualty his family's dog, Rex. According to Ansley, the family was unable to find the dog before fleeing into a lobster boat that came to help him. He was a great companion of my wife and two sons, Ansley told the Globe after arriving ashore. He was in the cabin when the firing started, and we could not find him anywhere when we were ready to leave for the shore. Ansley said he was holding out hope that Rex had made it to the stern of the badly damaged Lansford, the only barge that was still afloat. The captain said he was hoping to go out the next day to try and find the dog, but that trip became unnecessary when Walter Eldridge, a Chatham fisherman, arrived ashore later that day with Rex, safely in his boat. Eldridge told the Globe that he had gone out to check on the Lansford and, upon arriving at the barge, was met by the dog who greeted him with yelps of joy. Despite its singular distinction as the only place in the country hit by enemy fire in World War I, the Orleans attack has since been, as Senator John McCain puts it, tucked away in the dusty archives of history. Pamela Feltus, the executive director at the Orleans Historical Society, said a hotel on Nowset Beach used to display a large sign commemorating the attack, but it was torn down long ago. Currently, the only marker exists on the private stairwell to a private beach. You almost have to trespass to see this marker, Clem said, It's not easily accessible. But with the centennial approaching, Feltus says a town-wide celebration is in the works for next year. We're still working on our plans, but it's going to be big, she said. Feltus says the Historical Society has already begun collecting artifacts from the attack, including bullet-ridden wood from the ships and an oar from one of the lifeboats, and hopes that others will come forward with their own contributions. Given that locals reportedly scoured the beach for souvenirs following the attack, they may not be in short supply. Clem says that he still comes across pieces of a German shell for auction online. After all, he noted, the term beachcomber was popularized on Cape Cod. Now a story titled america's first attack from the sky the bombing of naco arizona and this is from worldhistory.us world war ii and september 11 2001 are well-known time periods when america was attacked from the air but what about the first bombing in 1929 it is 1929 just before the economic conditions of the united states would turn their darkest On the border between the United States and Mexico are two hot desert sister towns, Naco, Sonora, a little village on the border of Mexico and Naco, a population of about 800, in southeastern Arizona. Both fairly small communities. However, Naco, Mexico, having the gambling and drinking saloons, it had the rather seedier population the spring of 1929, strange events would occur to put the other NACO, Arizona, on the map. In the early part of 1929, there was the Cristero or Escobar Rebellion, protesting the heavy taxation and general discontentment with how the country was being run, in Mexico. The Mexican federal troops dug in around NACO, Sonora, Mexico, and under severe attack by the rebel forces in April of that year the battles became a spectator sport on the NACO, Arizona side. Sightseers gathered to watch the various skirmishes. Now and then, a stray bullet would send the sightseers escaping for cover. However, both sides in the conflict were careful to avoid excessive firing coming across the border for fear that the United States military forces would step in and retaliate. With the battles only during the daylight hours, visitors from nearby towns like Bisbee drove over to NACO, Arizona to watch sitting in their wagons, vehicles, or on the makeshift benches that were provided. One adventurous individual, Patrick Murphy, also knew of the events in both NACO towns. He had his own bi-winged airplane and was somewhat of a barnstormer, an aerialist who performed almost any trick or feat with an airplane. Before he was in Arizona, Patrick earlier had been charged with second-degree manslaughter in Alabama after his mechanic died in a plane crash. Patrick suffered a crippled leg from the crash and continued to walk with a limp. Those charges were later dropped. At the end of March 1929, after a few whiskey drinks at the saloon in Bisbee, Murphy thought he had a plan for assisting the Mexican rebels in their revolution. He proclaimed, I'm going to make some homemade bombs, load them into my Jenny airplane, and fly down there to NACO to help out those poor under-equipped and overrun revolutionists. Mexican rebels accepted the offer of this barnstormer from the United States to bomb NACO from the air, for which he would be amply paid. Using pipes filled with dynamite, scrap iron, nails and bolts, and then stuffed into several old leather suitcases, the bombs were quickly ready. Note some believed his homemade bombs were contact-fused artillery shells fitted with tail fins. Patrick Murphy made his first and second bombing attempts between March 31st and April 1st. However, both tries, the bombs, did not explode. On the third attempt, the bomb hit the Custom House, but it also sprayed spectators watching the battle from the American side who were sitting on railroad cars. Murphy landed his plane and hastily made four more bombs. Now, on his next attempt, he released many more bombs between Thursday, April 4th, and Saturday, April 6th. His first bomb landed south of the border in a Mexican federal trench, killing two soldiers. However, the other three bombs landed north of the border on the American side. One landed on Charles Newton's garage, with windows broken in the nearby NACO Haas Pharmacy, another on the local Phelps Dodge Mercantile, along with severely damaging a Dodge touring car, and the third on the United States Post Office. Newton did suffer a splinter in his hand. In spite of Murphy's many efforts, he was a terrible bombardier. Murphy included some special flying stunts like flying sideways and upside down with his travel-air plane. The subsequent day, the U.S. government troops arrived and disabled Murphy's plane before he could drop any more bombs. The Mexican general, Topede of the rebel forces promised American officials there would be no further bombing incidents, especially over the border. Murphy escaped safely behind Mexican rebel lines. He crossed back on April 30th over the American border when the rebellion ended. He felt that was wiser than possibly facing a firing squad under the victorious federal Mexican government. Murphy was then arrested by U.S. officials for violating U.S. neutrality laws and taken to jail in Tucson, Arizona. However, he was not prosecuted and later released. He also was never paid by the mexican rebels for his aerial efforts patrick murphy an american would go down in history as the first person working for a foreign country to bomb the u.s mainland from the air only patrick murphy was not the only american soldier of fortune working for the mexican government or rebels in that 1929 rebellion there were several other men termed yankee doodle escadrille who were hired by the opposing Mexican forces to drop bombs or fire on the enemy positions. Some of the other mercenary filers were Captain Richard H. Polk from Tennessee, B.M. Cole, Colonel Art Smith, George Kohler, John Gore, and Phil Mahoon But it is Patrick Murphy's name that is recalled in legend whenever it's questioned when and where the first bombs were dropped from the skies on the United States. Here's another story by Nick Moore, fan favorite, and one of my favorites too. This one's called The Black Cloud. Did you know that in 1911, wolves killed a wedding party of 118 people in Russia? The New York Times described the survivors seeing a black cloud moving rapidly toward them across the snowfield a pack of hundreds of starving wolves that slaughtered them while they traveled to what was supposed to be a celebratory banquet. I've been thinking about that story a lot lately. I won't say where I am. The government is probably looking for leaks, and I need this warning to stay up for as long as possible. This information is too important to keep hidden. Animals had been acting strangely for a while, skittish, like something had spooked them. The neighbors in our little rural village complained about strange lights in the night. We all had ideas, the kind of idle chit-chat we're really good at. The winter had been too warm. Maybe they were crews looking to build that factory in the next town. Probably teenagers with those damn fireworks, drinking beer, being stupid. The night it happened was a full moon. I remember walking home from visiting a friend earlier in the evening and being amazed at how well-lit everything was in the moonlight. I was too far from the first attack to hear the screams, but the news the next day shocked me. Wolves had attacked a campsite nearby. Fifteen people had been killed, and another eight injured. While this wasn't unheard of, the loss of life was extreme, and we were all shocked by it. However, there weren't more attacks. People healed, and we mourned and moved on the second month was much worse. My neighbor's cousin had moved in after the attack so he could recuperate, and the neighbor had complained to no end about the inconvenience by which he meant he couldn't hit his wife when he had a relative staying in the house. I heard his screams when it started. I remember looking at the window and seeing a giant wolf chasing him out of his house and being frozen by the sight. It was too large, unnatural, deadly. I locked myself in the basement for the night, and prayed for morning. Sunrise brought only awful news and heartbreak. Our village was not large, and the fifty-five deaths shook it. Another thirty-seven people were injured, and no one could explain how a pack of large wolves had descended across such a distance without being noticed, nor how so many of them had gotten into people's houses. I began to hear dark whispers. Rumors that the survivors had been touched with some dark curse that they were to blame for this. For the next month, it seemed like we sat on a powder keg, the whole community counting down the days until the next full moon. I'm not sure how many people were killed that night. I know that the soldiers arrived the next morning, and we were told that we were being relocated to a small city close by where we could be protected. Just a temporary safety measure, while the government killed an especially violent pack of wolves. After arriving in the city and being inspected for wounds by an army medic, we wound up in makeshift shelters. Villages throughout the surrounding area had been emptied into the city, and anyone who had been bitten by a wolf was moved to a special quarantine at some camp outside the city. I never saw any of those people again, but I assume they're now dead. I spent a long day in line waiting for an examination. Another day spent in line waiting for my allowance cards for food and water. The third day I had queued up for temporary housing and made a comment without thinking about how I'd still be in line when the next full moon rolled around. I've always been like that, prone to making comments without thinking. My last relationship ended when my girlfriend asked if I ever thought about getting married and I said no. The guard who heard me yanked me out of line, just as an old university classmate recognized me while walking by. Turns out he had an empty apartment I could use that was already furnished. For once, my mouth had worked in my favor. I glanced with glee as I walked away from the swirling, serpentine line of people waiting for housing. The entire thing was a giant, hectic mess. Mistakes were made. Mistakes are always made. The atmosphere in the city was chaotic. The local priests began to warn about how we were being punished by the gods. They stood in front of churches and shouted that salvation lay within, that they offered the only protection from God's wrath. Soldiers with rifles stood on every corner. Again, the countdown to the full moon set everyone on edge. One of the largest churches announced it would serve as a sanctuary, locking their doors to protect the flock within. I turned in early that night, and barricaded the door I don't know how many people in that church had been bitten I don't know what it must have been like when they turned when the crowd realized they were locked in with them I do remember the screams and the sirens outside I remember the explosions and gunfire in the distance I remember the next morning too when all inhabitants ordered to appear for inspection watching those who had been bitten being taken away and the morning after that When the soldiers were gone, we were told that they had built fortifications around the entire area, a barricade to keep this problem in. I heard they shot anyone approaching it. We were alone now, and there were other dangers besides the wolves. A group of hard men announced they had formed a local protection squad. They searched homes for people who had been bitten and were being sheltered by protective families. They beat those who they thought were hiding from them and collected weapons and food for distribution. They were a hard-drinking, violent bunch and a citizenry used to tough rule buckled quickly. They hung those who they suspected of having been bitten throughout the city as a public show of how they would protect us. The internet had been blocked since we moved here and every day I watched the news in a vain hope that our situation had been noticed by someone in the outside world. Stuck in a city not my own, caught between a malicious ruling class and a pack of supernatural wolves, I prayed for deliverance. On the night of the next full moon, we were all ordered into our homes at 3 p.m., long before sundown. I heard that the protection squad had found a bunker they were safe in. Someone said only the two titular leaders, Anton and Xander, had the keys. I heard that they locked themselves and their goons underground and waited for morning. The wolves streamed into the city like an oil slick cuts through water, a line of darkness that you know will remain long after it appears to dissipate. Those who were living in less secure homes met a quick fate, and I watched him from above and cried. I prayed for deliverance from my brutal reality. The protection squad inspected us again the next day, and again the day after that. Now they would stop people in the streets and order them to disrobe. You can imagine the liberties they took. The bite victims who they hung seemed to include a disproportionate amount of their detractors, but I said nothing. In truth, I was terrified. I prayed every night for a sliver of hope. It didn't come. It was almost four weeks later when I rounded a corner and watched Anton beating a man. What are you doing? The words had escaped my mouth before I realized I was speaking. This scene in front of me was clear. I saw the woman crying, the man, her father, standing between her and Anton, bleeding. Anton paced over to me and placed a hand on my shoulder. This doesn't concern you. Carry on, friend. I looked at the pleading eyes of the man and looked at my feet. I... My words cut off as his fist hit my stomach. Didn't I tell you to carry on? He snarled as he circled me, looking for an opening to exact more violence as I tried to curl into a ball. He kicked my side, then my head. I heard a scream as the man threw himself onto Anton's back. I heard shouts and footsteps. A crowd surrounded Anton, holding him back from attacking the man. Then, laughter. Anton announced he was ready for his prize fight against the wolves. The crowd dispersed quickly, leaving us alone. The man and his daughter shuffled past me. Thank you, he whispered as he went by. I clenched my eyes shut until I was sure I was alone. I waited for the pain in my body to subside. Minutes passed. Finally, I opened my eyes. There, on the ground in front of me, laid a key. It was days before I slipped through the city to the side of the bunker where Anton and his men would take refuge. I tested the heavy door of the bunker and found it locked. I looked around and, finding myself still alone, I pulled the key from my pocket and inserted it into the lock. It turned. Relocking the door, I hid the key away and hurried back to my apartment to think. We were all ordered to our homes at 3 p.m. again, the day of the full moon. And I thought out my strategy. The plan was flawed in a hundred ways, and I could not fathom how it ended, if not in my death. I watched the streets empty first of citizens, then finally of the protection squad searching for stragglers. The sun grew lower in the sky as I changed into a pair of dark clothes and grabbed a hammer. At dusk, I slipped through the door to my building and began my journey. I slinked through the empty streets, hearing the distant howls begin. My plan was simple. Unlock the door, destroy the lock with the hammer, and run back to my apartment before the wolves got me, while stranding the evil men in the bunker without a safe haven. It was a dumb idea. The light dropped out of the city quickly. Few streetlights still came on, and all the buildings appeared lifeless though I knew they teemed with life, hidden behind boards and crouched under beds. I arrived at the bunker and smiled. I had made it. I walked towards the door when a sound made me turn. A wolf stood behind me. The beast was giant. I have seen a mastiff once before, and this creature was at least twice its size. I clutched the hammer in my hand, trying to decide if I could fight it off when I saw another behind it and then another. A tear ran down my cheek and I dropped the hammer. I would not survive this night. There are bad men in there. Again, the words poured from my mouth before I realized I was speaking. The wolf stared at me. In the bunker, I came to unlock the door. I continued, you can eat me, just let me unlock the door. In that moment, the wolf inclined its head ever so slightly. I took a step backwards, and then another. Moving slowly, I pulled the key from my pocket and inserted it into the lock. I turned it and opened the door, stepping to the side as I did so. I felt a breeze as the large animals flew through the door into the bunker and heard the confused screams from within. I waited until the wolves poured back out of the bunker, away from me, and left the city. I walked back to my apartment and spent the night staring at the ceiling. In the morning, I walked out of the city. I heard bits of confused conversation and I knew I had hours before anyone tried to exert control. I walked into the woods and kept walking, picking up bits of a trail here and there. I slept under the stars and walked further the next day, finally coming to a small camp that night. The people who greeted me were friendly warm. They explained the changes they suffered through, how they were trying to control their hunger, to harness it. They did not wish to harm the innocent, and in me, they finally found an ally who might understand. I'm writing this from a small government office in the western barricade. There are four of us inside now, posing as soldiers. There have been enough reinforcements that no one knows who exactly is supposed to be here and who isn't. The next full moon is in three days. When the three men with me turn, the guards will be distracted. I'll open the doors for the rest of the pack, and we'll be through the barricade. The priest said the wolves were a punishment from God, and now I realize he's right. There is a way to punish the evil in the world, to wipe away the unjust. We're building something beautiful. After this full moon, we'll be free, and then... Maybe we'll be at your home for the next one. There is a lot of evil in the world, and the pack is hungry. That concludes this episode of the Cursed Land Podcast. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you all enjoyed. As always, if you've got a story you'd like to hear on the show or any other feedback please email feedback at curse.land. The show is also on Twitter at Curseland, So you can message me on there if you prefer till next time. I'll talk to y'all later.